You're listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity today. I hope you're having a great summer. And so what we want to talk about today is a passage of Scripture in the book of Acts that has many different interpretations that really distinguish the difference between a Reformed or Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereignty and election versus a more Arminian or synergistic or non-Calvinistic understanding of God's sovereignty in election. And so a couple weeks ago, I was reading some blog articles. I was listening to um, some podcasts, and I came across this understanding from the other side, from the, maybe the traditional Southern Baptist or the Arminian um, non-Calvinistic side, as to how they interpret Acts 13.48. Now, let me give you the context here. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas go into Pisidia of Antioch. And as was Paul's custom when he would go to a new town, his missionary method would be to go to the synagogue first. Uh, He would go to the synagogue because he already had an, an established relationship with Jewish people because he was Jewish. These people knew the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul had a good starting place to start with Uh, the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Christ is the Messiah. And so that's what he does. He and and Barnabas go into Antioch of Pisidia. They are in the synagogue. They're invited to preach. Um, Expository preaching was done by rabbis in the synagogue system. And so Paul basically preaches an expository sermon, taking many Old Testament passages of scripture And he uses those to prove that Christ is indeed the Messiah. And um, the audience is a mixture of both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, what a God-fearing Gentile is. But there was an amazing response to what was happening. Um, after Paul preached, the people came up and said, man, we want to hear more of this. This, this is We've never heard preaching that is so Christ-centered, and we've never heard the gospel. And so uh, they begged Paul and Barnabas to stay with them. And then uh, what ended up happening was the next Sabbath, pretty much the whole town showed up to hear because those that had gotten saved were so excited, they went out and they invited their friends. And then Paul preaches again a very Christ-centered message. He calls them to repent, and obviously there was a, a great response. Um, so let's pick up um, in, well, let's pick up in Acts 13, um, 40, uh, towards the tail end of Paul's sermon. Um, in Acts 13, 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said about you and the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And they went out, and the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God." The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. 
And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, obviously, this is a narrative passage of Scripture in the text where Luke is describing what is happening at the synagogue service through the powerful preaching of the gospel and how God had saved Gentiles and how the Jews were scoffing and how the Jews did not accept the message and how Paul basically um, pronounces a judgment on them and says, listen, um, you're reviling, you're blaspheming uh, the gospel. We're going to go to the Gentiles. And then what Luke often does in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of Acts is after a narrative passage, he may give one or two brief comments that give a theological explanation of what happened. And that's exactly what we have in verse 48, Acts 13, 48. Luke gives a theological explanation. He says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we look at this as Reformed uh, scholars and theologians and those that hold to the sovereignty of God and salvation. We look at this as a powerful passage of Scripture that demonstrates God's unconditional election of sinners to be saved. We look at this and say the the reason that these Gentiles actually believed was because God had unconditionally chosen or predestined them or appointed them or ordained them to eternal life. And thus, the fruit of their election is their faith in Christ. So faith in Christ is the fruit of their election. Now, what... The non-Calvinistic, synergistic, Arminian, maybe traditional Southern Baptist view is that they look at that word ordained in the Greek and they would say that these God-fearing Gentiles, these Gentiles who were seeking the Lord, who had attached themselves to the synagogue, were predisposed or prepared to hear the truth brought to them on that day. Now, the audience that Paul is addressing, you go all the way back up to chapter, or chapter 13, verse 14, where this whole, uh, this whole scene starts. And Paul stands up, motioning with his arms, and he addresses the audience, and he says, Men of Israel and those who fear God. And so you have this category of Jewish people that were in the synagogue, and then you had the God-fearers. These were Gentiles who were interested in the Torah. They were interested in being part of the synagogue. They were what we would call proselytes. Um, Some of them actually underwent circumcision to be fully included into the synagogue system. Um, Others didn't go that far. 
Um, but these are not believers. These Jewish people are not believers. These Gentile people are not believers. These God-fearers, if you will, are lost. They are depraved. They are sinners under God's wrath. They're spiritually dead. They are not saved. And so this is the audience. And so you do have two groups of people in the audience. You have Jews, those who were rejecting the gospel. Oftentimes Paul would go to them. And then you'd have these God-fearing Gentiles. And who responds to the message? Well, in mass, the Gentiles respond, the Jews do not. And so you see a response there that is overwhelmingly Gentile and a rejection by those who are Jewish. And so what these um, other views would say is that those Jews had become hardened over time. They'd become calloused, and so when the gospel came to them, they rejected it out of their calloused condition. Whereas these God-fearing Gentiles, they were ready. They were seeking God. They had prepared themselves. They had put themselves in a position. They were disposed, if you will, to believe the message. And so God had set his favor upon them because they were demonstrating a humbleness. They were demonstrating contrition. And so uh, these these God-fearing Gentiles uh, were basically predisposed to believe the message. Now, oftentimes we will, on this podcast and with conversations with others, will disagree on the doctrine of election. Some people may believe in foreseen faith. Some people may believe in corporate election. We believe in unconditional election. We, we quibble about the, the issue of election. The, this, to me, though, is... A little bit different because I think this goes to the heart of grace. This goes to the heart of the gospel. And so I think this interpretation of Acts 13.48, I think in such an attempt to want to deny unconditional election, what those who have taken this um, different interpretation have done, they've actually cut the guts out of God's grace. And, And let me show you some questions I have about this. And so um, they, would, they would argue that these God-fearing Gentiles are ready to receive the gospel. They're prepared. They're, they're disposed. They're, they're, they're already in a position of being humble. They're, in, in, they're contrite. And so because of their already, basically by their own free will, putting themselves in a position to be humble, when that message comes to them, God, in a sense, rewards them. God shows favor on them because they had predisposed themselves to want to have the light given to them, and thus God saves them. But here's the question. What's the condition that these sinners met in order for God to show them favor? Well, they would say, well, they were humble. They were contrite. They disposed themselves to believe. Now, the problem with this is that this shows merit. This shows some type of condition, something inherent in those God-fearing Gentiles that predisposed them or moved them to be saved. And so... Their contrition, their humility, their readiness, their openness, whatever you call it, that would be the cause 
for God to show favor to them. That would be, in, in a sense, God responding to their openness by granting them the ability to believe or to, to have eternal life. And so, in other words, there's a condition. It's, it's almost like conditional salvation, a conditional election. Whether God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that they were going to choose, that's the Arminian view, or, or, or whether these Gentiles were actually predisposed in a sense that, that made them somewhat better than the Jews. Now, um, let me give you the, the maybe a modern-day scholar. Really the first person, I think, to question this, um, maybe, maybe it's probably been about 100 years or so, but Lenski, he's a Lutheran scholar who's written some commentaries. Um, he's very anti-Calvinistic. Um, even he had to admit when looking at this passage of Scripture that um, you can't help but see that this, is, that this blows synergism out of the water. It's got to be sovereign election. Then he goes on and gives a couple of other paragraphs about why that can't be true. But um, a notable scholar today who is more Arminian is Dr. Brian Abishkano. Um, he's a, a Greek scholar. He's a New Testament scholar. Um, let me give you his definition. Now, let me just give you some Greek. Um, the word to appoint there, um, the ordain, it, it's the Greek word tasso. Uh, tasso. And I'm going to explain the grammar here in just a moment. Let me just give you um, his take on this passage of Scripture. He says, quote, The best understanding of tasso, appointed in Acts 13.48, is that it refers to Gentiles who were, quote, in position for eternal life, ready for eternal life, or even intent on obtaining eternal life, particularly in contrast to the Jews of the same episode who opposed Paul and rejected the gospel and so who judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And that the most accurate translation of the phrase in question would be something like, as many as were disposed to eternal life believed, or as many as were aligned for eternal life believed, or as many as were positioned for eternal life. So they had disposed themselves, they were disposed, they were positioned, they were aligned. Trying to play some gymnastics with this word tasso to get away from anything related to God's election or God's sovereign predestination. Now, the grammar is very clear in this passage of Scripture. The reason they believed is because they were already appointed to an eternal life in the sense that they were among the elect chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, let me just give you some grammar here. I know some of you may not like it when I get into grammar. Some of you may like, may like it, but I think grammar is very, very important when you're exegeting Scripture. Okay, the word tasso, or appointed, or ordained, is in what we call a perfect participle. Perfect tense, participle. While the word believed is in the aorist tense, which is a, a finite verb. Now, you need to understand something grammatically. This, this is something that is a grammatical rule of Greek. It's not necessarily something that you come to theologically. This is just a Greek, a Greek grammar rule. When there is a perfect tense participle or a perfect tense verb in a sentence, along with an aorist verb or a finite verb, the perfect tense verb or the perfect tense participle stands as the cause or the source or the antecedent or what comes first 
of why the aorist verb happens. So, in other words, grammatically, in this passage of Scripture, tasso, ordained, is a perfect participle. Believed is aorist. So, what comes first in time? Does they believed come first in time, or does it come in first in time they were appointed? Well, grammatically, they were appointed comes first in time, and that then becomes the source or the cause or the reason why they believed. So, the perfect tense of the verb means that God's appointing or ordaining or choosing took place in the past, but it is relative to the present. Um, In other words, the text does not say, pay close attention to the text. Let's read the text again, just in our English, very carefully. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so what were they appointed to? What were they appointed to? The text does not say they were ordained or appointed to believe. The text says that they were appointed or ordained to eternal life. It was not that they were somehow predisposed to believe but that God in eternity past had sovereignly ordained or predestined these to eternal life. And then, when the gospel was preached to them, they believed as a result of their already being chosen to eternal life. In other words, faith is the fruit of sovereign election, not the other way around. This is not a synergistic text that is talking about humans cooperating with God in this whole process of salvation. Um, It's not, if you read it carefully, the text does not say, they believed and thus they disposed themselves or they appointed themselves to eternal life. What comes first, the believing or the being appointed? Well, grammatically, the being appointed. They were first appointed to eternal life, then thus they believed. Now, Luke could have used a present participle or a present tense verb to, to, to indicate concurrent or simultaneous actions. But he doesn't do that. He purposely uses the perfect participle and the finite verb to show the monergistic nature of sovereign election. Now, you can quibble about what that word tasso means. And so those that try to get around this whole sovereign election thing basically say, well, tasso does not necessarily mean um, to appoint or designate or ordain. Um, One thing we have to also remember, too, not only is it a perfect participle, it's a perfect passive participle. Now, what is a passive participle? A passive verb or a passive participle means that the the action being done is not done in an active way by the person doing it. You're acted upon. You're passive in the action. So, you don't even ordain yourself. You don't appoint yourself. It's a passive participle. In other words, the way that could be translated is God at a point in time in the past appointed you or appointed them and then at a point in time they believed as a result of God having sovereignly ordained them. Now, 
let's just talk about this word tasso, appoint, designate. Um, does it mean disposed to believe? Remember, what does the text say? They were appointed not to believe, they were appointed to eternal life, and then they believed. Now, scholar F.F. F. Bruce, probably one of the greatest scholars of the New Testament in the 20th century, in his commentary on Acts, makes a great um, statement about this word. He says that there have been uh, papyrus evidence. When you go back and you look at ancient scrolls to talk about what this word tasso meant, that it actually meant to inscribe or to enroll a person in a register. And here's what he says. He writes this, quote, We cannot agree with those who attempt to tone down the predestinarian note of this phrasing by rendering as, man, as, were, as many as were disposed to eternal life. He says, listen, we're not going to buy this whole they were disposed to eternal life. He says, we cannot agree with those who attempt to do this. Uh, we, those that try to tone down the predestinary nature of this passage of Scripture, we can't agree with them. Here's what he says. Let me go on to continue his quote. The Greek participle for appoint, tasso, has been shown by papyrus evidence that this verb means to inscribe or enroll the idea of being enrolled in the book of life. Okay, so if this, they were appointed, they were enrolled, they were inscribed, they were registered, they were predestined, they, their, their names were written down before time in a book. Where else in the Bible do we see this whole idea of names being written down in a book? Well, Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. It's talking about the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written. When? Before the foundation of the world. Where? in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation teaches that before the foundation of the world, names were written in the Lamb's book of life. They were inscribed, they were registered, they were enrolled, they were in, in that registry. Very similar to what this Acts passage is saying, is that you, you could almost say that all whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world Thus were appointed or ordained or enrolled, they believed. You also see this in, Act, in Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, it is not, and is to come. So F.F. F. Bruce gives some great insight into the, the meaning of that word tasso. Now, what I want to do is one of the important things that you need to do when you do Bible study is to see how a particular author uses a Greek word throughout the rest of his writing. And so Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Luke. And here's just a side note. This is a trivia question. I don't know if you know this, but you ask the question, who wrote the majority of the New Testament? And most people would say, well, that was Paul. Paul wrote the majority. Well, Paul wrote more books, but actual content, actual chapters and verses goes to Luke. When you take Luke and Acts together, it comprises the greatest amount of material in the New Testament. And so let's ask the question. 
If Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, uses this verb tasso here in Acts 13.48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, then believed, how does he use that same Greek word elsewhere? Because you can get some clues into the meaning in one passage and how he uses it in another passage. Now, remember, when you do word studies, context determines the key. Context determines how that word's used. You can't just go to a, lexi- you know, a lexicon or a, or a Greek Bible dictionary and just say, here's the definition. That's a good starting point, but you've got to actually understand what we call the semantic domain. Um, the semantic domain is basically a, a terminology that means how is this word used throughout the, uh, the, the, the particular writer's usage uh, continually in a, in a book, per se, um, and then with the gr- grammar and everything together, um, w- what can you say that word means? And so let's talk about the semantic domain usage of the Greek verb tasso, appointed, ordained, used by Luke in the rest of the book of Acts. And let's just ask the question, Does it mean predisposed, or does it mean appoint? Let's start in Acts 15.2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This is the Jerusalem council issue, but notice Paul and Barnabas were appointed by the church to go up to Jerusalem to talk to, to be the representatives. Now, they were appointed. Does that mean they predisposed themselves? They were disposed to go up? Uh, they, 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 they had put themselves in a position to be, to be chosen to go up? Or were they appointed by the church? They were selected. They were chosen. We'd say something like this. If, if there's um, a, a dispute going on, let's say, all right, let's put it this way. Let's, if you're Southern Baptist and you're listening to this, um, here's what happens. Um, every year we have an annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention. This past year it was in Phoenix. And the, the annual meeting is made up of messengers who are chosen or voted on by the church, and they go represent that church as messengers. And so you're chosen by your church. You're elected. You are appointed by your church to go as a representative. And so this is really what the word means here. Paul and Barnabas were chosen. They were selected, they were appointed to go to Jerusalem. So there was a choice being made. In this sense, in this case, the church chose them. The church appointed them. The church authorized them to go. All right? Acts 22.10. This is um, Paul giving a testimony um, about his, his Damascus Road experience. He says, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now, this is interesting because this is in the same paraphrastic phrase. And what I mean by that is it's got the perfect passive indicative. This is perfect passive indicative. Now, in the Acts 13.48, it's perfect passive participle, but they're both in the perfect and in the passive. And so you've got a very, very similar verb uh, structure here. And Paul is told by the Lord, listen, you're going to go into Damascus because I've sovereignly saved you, and there you'll be told what is appointed for you to do, what has already been chosen for you to do, what I have already sovereignly assigned for you to do. Now, did Paul choose that? 
Was Paul predisposed to be appointed to go be the task of uh, being a, a missionary to the Gentiles? As a matter of fact, no. Paul was a a hard man. He was a blasphemer. He was an insolent opponent of the gospel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and God sovereignly gripped his heart on the road to Damascus and took those those blinders off of his eyes and showed him the glory of Christ. And God had sovereignly chosen Paul for salvation and sovereignly chosen Paul for a task of being a missionary to the Gentiles. And so it was appointed What God had sovereignly chosen or appointed or assigned to Paul, he would go in Damascus and find out what God had sovereignly chosen for him to do. Now, was Paul predisposed to that or was it something that God had sovereignly appointed to him for him to do? Okay, Acts 28, 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. When they had appointed a day for him, when they had chosen a day for him, Paul, here's the day we're choosing for you to come. Here's the day we're appointing. You come on that day. Was Paul predisposed to go on that day or did they choose the day for him to go? Over and over again, it's not this predisposing yourself to something. It's somebody... God or people in this point, uh, like the church was appointing, the church was making a choice to send them. God had made a choice for what Paul was going to do. The people had chosen a day for him to come. It's always the, the recipient's passive in this appointing. Now let's look at Luke 7, 8. So let's go into the gospel of Luke because he's the same writer. How does he use this word? He's talking about the... Um, the centurion. Uh, the centurion says, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and, do, and he does it. For I am too a man set under authority. I'm set. I'm appointed. I'm, I'm ordained to be under authority. Um, it, I, I don't choose whether I can come out of that authority or not. Uh, being part of the military means that I have no choice. I'm set under authority. It's appointed for me to be under the authority of my commanding officer. The same Greek word. All right, let's talk about how Paul uses it. Paul uses that same Greek word. Now, Paul's not obviously the writer of, of Acts or Luke. Paul, Paul wrote you know, most of the New Testament epistles. But in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verse 1, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Tasso, have been instituted, have been ordained. So, and that's in the perfect passive participle. That's in the same Greek construction that Luke uses in Acts 13.48 to talk about those who were appointed to eternal life. So, God has sovereignly appointed, sovereignly chosen, sovereignly instituted governing authorities. Now, are these governing authorities predisposed? Are these governing authorities the ones that are in charge? Who's sovereignly appointing these these governing authorities? It's God in His sovereignty. So almost every use of this Greek word tasso indicates some type of choice, some type of appointing, some type of ordaining, choosing. 
And it never really means somebody predisposed, someone putting themselves in a position, uh, someone that was readying themselves by the, how they responded. It's always, the, the person's always passive. Uh, there's always somebody else doing the verb of the appointing. You, you don't appoint yourself, it's, it's passive. Now, what they're going to say is that these God-fearing Jews were disposing themselves or were predisposed or were, were putting themselves in a position to be able to believe. One of them, they would say something like this. Um, they would say that, that Luke was trying to contrast these God-fearing Gentiles who had prepared themselves to come to faith to the self-righteous Jews who had grown hardened and stubborn, who had um, prepared themselves for destruction. And so, I want to just deal with some commentaries. Now, obviously, commentators, you can find a commentary that fits your theological persuasion. Okay, so you know if you go to the pillar commentary, if you go to... Um, the, you know, Crossways Bible commentaries, if you go to the Reformed R.C. Sproul commentaries, you're going to get a more Calvinistic leaning. So, obviously, those types of commentaries are going to be more leaning Calvinistic. But some commentaries that you would look at and say, okay, these are middle of the road, these are scholarly, they're not coming from a theological bent. How do they deal with this passage of Scripture. Well, let's talk about the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Okay, this is a very um, middle-of-the-road um, Expositor's Commentary. It's, it's, it's good. It's not technically um, real deep. Uh, it's more of a, it's not necessarily a layman's commentary, but it's not a, what I would consider a technical commentary. I'd consider it a middle-of-the-road. Um, it's, it's, it's good, uh, solid, theologically uh, conservative. Listen to how the Expositor's Bible Commentary makes a statement on this passage of Scripture. Quote, All who were appointed for eternal life believe suggests that belief in Christ is not just a matter of one's faith, but primarily involves divine appointment. Okay, so they, they don't want to expand upon that. They just make that sentence and that's, that's all they say about it. And so they're not going to go one way or the other. Now, the pillar commentary, which is reform-leaning, but it's very, very um, lexically and exegetically, I think, very, very rich. I, I like probably one of my favorite commentary series is probably the pillar commentary. I use that a lot. Almost every, every book that I've preached that has a pillar commentary, I found those to be very helpful. Um, and so when I preached through Acts about three or four years ago, I did rely heavily on the pillar commentary. But listen to what he says. Um, Luke draws attention to the way in which God uses the gospel to call out his elect and save them. The present verf, verse is an unqualified statement of absolute predestination the eternal purpose of God, as is found anywhere in the New Testament. Not everyone is affected in the same way by the preaching of the gospel. God must open hearts to enable people to listen and to respond with faith. Okay, that commentary is flat out coming out, you know, no holds barred saying this is, this is sovereign election. Okay, the international critic, critical commentary. The International Critical Commentary is actually a pretty good commentary that is not biased. Um, 
you, you find some some things in there. Uh, I don't often use it. It's more of an older commentary. I think there's some newer ones that are a little bit more um, like the New International Greek commentary. But let me give you what C.K. Barrett says about this. Um, quote, Some had been appointed thus to believe and thereby to receive eternal life. Tasso is a fairly common word in Acts, used five to four, five, uh, four times, five times in the rest of the New Testament, um, but only here does it have theological significance. The present verse is an unqualified statement of absolute predestination as is found anywhere in the New Testament. Those who believed were appointed, the passive implies by God, to do so. The rest, one infers, did not believe and did not receive eternal life, and thus were appointed to death. The positive statement implies the negative. Now, what he's going to do here, and I think the pillar commentary probably quoted from him, he takes it one step further and says, not only are those ordained to eternal life, did they believe, but because there's a positive statement, logically and theologically, we have to infer the negative that those that did not believe, that did not receive eternal life, they were ordained, they were predestined to death. And so he's taking it even a step further by saying, not only were those appointed to eternal life, there are also, by negative inference, those who are appointed to eternal death. Now, I think there's a problem with one of the ways in which this interpretation has been used. Um, one modern-day proponent of this view has said that those people who died prior to Christ's coming, but who, like Cornelius, genuinely feared the Lord, would have been credited as righteous, i.e. appointed to eternal life, even though they never had opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. Okay, so what this person's saying is that these God-fearing Jews are like Lydia, they're like Cornelius, they, they, they were predisposed to believe. The reason they were predisposed to believe is because they were seeking God, and because they were seeking God and, and wanting more truth, God rewarded that, in a sense, by coming to them and showing them favor because they had already initially uh, begun seeking God. And so they genuinely feared the Lord. And so those who genuinely feared the Lord, God rewards with bringing the gospel to them. And so these Gentiles, they were, they were ready. They were genuinely fearing the Lord. They were God-fears. They, they predisposed themselves. They were put themselves in a position to be seeking. And thus, when the gospel came to them, in a sense, they were ready. They were predisposed. And so when the gospel came to them, they believed. But let me just repeat this statement. People who died prior to Christ's coming... People who, like Cornelius, genuinely feared the Lord, would have been credited as righteous, i.e. appointed to eternal life, even though they never had the opportunity to hear and believe the gospel. That is a very problematic statement. Because, let me give you a few, few reasons why that's problematic. This gives a category of a non-believer who genuinely fears the Lord. Now, is a God-fearer like Cornelius, like Lydia, do they, quote-unquote, gen, genuinely 
fear the Lord? My question is, is there such a category in the Bible? Does Cornelius, let's just use Cornelius as an example, because he was, quote-unquote, a God-fearing Gentile, did he fear the Lord, or is he simply a, a God-fearing Gentile who attached himself to the synagogue system? There, there's a big difference. What, what does Acts 10 tell us about, about Cornelius? Acts 10, 1 through 2. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, you may look at that and say, well, well that's, that's pretty good. He's a devout man. That means he's pretty religious. He feared God. Okay, it must mean he was, he was worshiping God. Uh, he gave alms generously to the people. He was a generous man. He, he gave tithes and offerings, and he prayed. So obviously, this man was predisposed to believe the gospel because he was living a pretty righteous, religious, God-fearing life. Okay, Cornelius was religious. Cornelius was moral. Cornelius was generous. Cornelius was spiritual. But he was lost. I can't tell you how many people I've met here in northeastern Colorado who I would say they're devout, they're God-fearing, they're generous, and they pray. But they are lost. They are steeped in their sin and rebellion against God. And outwardly, they may show outward duties of righteousness, which are good and lawful, and maybe even want to somehow please God. But those types of outward duties are done in the flesh because every motivation, every desire, every act does not spring from an inward spiritual life of a regenerate person. So even though Cornelius was doing all these things, did he quote-unquote genuinely fear the Lord? What does that mean, he genuinely feared the Lord? I look at that and say he was, he was outwardly devout. He was outwardly righteous. Uh, he was a moral person, but he was lost. His righteousness was as filthy rags, as Isaiah says. And so what does Paul say about both Jew and Gentile, even those who are quote-unquote God-fearing Gentiles? In Romans 3, 10-18 as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So even if you're quote-unquote a God-fearing Gentile, a devout man, Paul says that outward act of righteousness intrinsically means that you don't really fear God because you have not been regenerated. Only a regenerated, born-again person can genuinely fear the Lord because they have a heart that's been changed to be able to do that. And so they've created a category here of, of, of a non-believer who quote-unquote genuinely fears the Lord and thus they've put themselves in a position to be predisposed to receive the gospel when it comes, which again points back to merit. There was something in them. Now, another problematic statement about this 
is that even if they never had um, heard of Christ, they never believed in Christ, but they genuinely feared the Lord without the gospel, they still would have been credited as righteous. And they equate that to being appointed to eternal life. They, they equate being credited to righteousness. They, they equate justification by faith and being appointed to eternal life as the same thing. And so there's a conflation or confusion of the doctrine of imputed righteousness by the means of faith that comes as a result of unconditional election. Now, the elect, the chosen here in Acts 13, 40, 48, are predestined unto salvation in eternity past. Okay? We need to understand something about unconditional election. Unconditional election does not mean that a sinner is automatically saved. I hear people say that a lot. Well, God just zaps a person and they don't even know if they're going to be saved. If they're, if they're elect, that means that they don't have to do anything. No, the Bible does not teach that. Unconditional election simply says that God in eternity past ordained sinners unto salvation to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be holy and blameless, to be adopted, to come to faith. But yet there comes a point in time when you personally trust Christ for salvation. And what saves you is Christ's righteousness, that imputed righteousness from Christ. And the means by which that happens is faith. Faith does not save you. Faith is the instrument. Faith is the means by which we grab a hold of Christ and we receive His righteousness. And even this, the faith that we exercise in order to receive the righteousness of Christ is in itself a gift. So the truth is, is that all the elect will be given the gift of faith. They will trust in Christ for salvation. They will be justified. So I think there's a confusion there between justification and election. Uh, but then the, the other thing here he says is that even if they never heard or had the opportunity to hear and believe the gospel, they still would have been credited as righteousness because they feared the Lord. Okay, so this is a category of persons who can receive eternal life apart from conscious faith in Jesus. It says even though they had never had the opportunity to hear and believe, they would still be credited as righteous. And so I don't quite understand this category of person that they've created. They've created a lost person who does not seek Christ, who does not fear God, but who genuinely fears God. And even if they never heard about Christ or had the opportunity to hear Christ, they would still be credited as righteous by Christ by simply their genuine faith, their genuine fear of the Lord. If that is true, then there are millions of Buddhists and Hindus and other religions around the world that are going to become Christians without ever having conscious faith in Christ. Because they're sincere. They're genuinely fearing the Lord. Even if it's not even the Christian God. And so, it's very interesting, this category of person, of, of, what this, of how they view this God-fearing Gentile. You get more um, understanding from this when you listen to how um, this Arminian scholar, um, his name is Dr. F. L. Fourlines, um, a classical Arminianism, a theology of salvation. Listen to what he says about this verse. Quote, However, the wording 
does not require that this appointment to eternal life must be a reference to eternity past. I think what this verse is telling us is that all those who had been saved prior to their hearing the New Testament gospel subsequently believed when they heard the gospel being presented by Paul and Barnabas. At the moment of their salvation in the past, they were appointed to eternal life. But when they heard about the redemptive work of Jesus the Messiah, they believed and became New Testament believers. Now that's the most ridiculous statement I have ever heard by anybody. This is making a category of people the Bible knows nothing about. Did you hear what he said? Listen to what he said. Those who had been saved prior to their hearing of the New Testament gospel. What do you mean they'd been saved prior to the hearing of the New Testament gospel? How can a person be saved prior to the hearing of the New Testament gospel? So you have a person who's saved, but they haven't yet heard the gospel. But when the gospel comes to them, then they really get saved because they believe the gospel. That's exactly what he says. It's almost a self-contradictory statement. Let me read it again and make sure that you you catch this. I think what this verse is telling us is that all those who had been saved prior to their hearing the New Testament gospel subsequently believed when they heard the gospel being presented by Paul and Barnabas. At the moment of their salvation in the past, they were appointed to eternal life. When they heard about the redemptive work of Jesus the Messiah, they believed and became New Testament believers. That is crazy. So they were saved. These God-fearing Gentiles were saved based upon their being God-fearing Gentiles. And so that was what they were appointed to when they, when they, when they, at some point in time when these God-fearing Gentiles got saved in the past before they heard the gospel, that's when they were appointed to eternal life. But when then Paul and Barnabas showed up with the gospel and presented the gospel, then they got saved a second time, I guess, and thus became New Testament believers. But the first time they believed... Before Paul and Barnabas came, the first time they were saved is when they were appointed. And then the second time they were saved is when Paul and Barnabas showed up at the gospel. Do you see how crazy that is? You see, this is making a category that the Bible knows nothing of. Those who were saved prior to hearing the gospel, and when they hear the gospel, they really get saved. Now, this entire view, I think, destroys the gospel of grace. Because what it's doing here is it's saying that there's some merit, there's something in that God-fearing Gentile that predisposed them to be saved. And that God showed special favor on them. And and think about the self-contradictory here. We don't want God unconditionally electing people and showing favoritism to people in eternity past, but yet... That same charge of, of you know, God being unfair, God showing favoritism, God, God electing people, th- that comes into play here because if these people are predisposed to believe, why are they predisposed? Well, they're predisposed because they've put themselves in a position for God to show favor on them by what this Armenian says, either being saved before they're saved or genuinely um, having um, fear of God. However you boil it down, there is this whole idea that God responds to something within the sinner that moves God to either dispose them, appoint them, or, or, or choose them, or put them in a position to receive the gospel. So in this scheme, who's in the driver's seat? It's the sinner. 
that's always what it comes back to. The, the, the sinner could say Cornelius, the God-fearing Jew, I mean the God-fearing Gentile, whoever it is, could say when they step foot into heaven, hey, the reason I'm here is because there was something within me I genuinely feared the Lord, I was predisposed, I put myself in a position, and once the gospel came to me, I believed it, they could boast. Because they could say there was something in me that was different than the person next to me that moved God to bring the gospel to me. And thus it all comes back to to merit. It's almost conditional salvation. God sets His favor on those who meet the terms of being predisposed. And so, even in their depravity, they, they really can't seek God, but yet somehow they're religious, they're genuinely seeking God, they're saved before they're saved, uh, they're, they're God-fearing, whatever it is, uh, they're preparing themselves to be saved by God because there's something within them that's the cause. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 1-9? through And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me just ask the simple question. Does this predisposed view this non-Christian being genuinely fearing God, does it teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Even the faith that we have to believe in Jesus is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, not a result of merit, nothing within us, because then that would cause us to boast. Listen to John Calvin's words. Now you may say, well, he's, he's the ultimate Calvinist, John Calvin. Well, yeah, I grant that to you. But I think that he has some good words to say about this Acts passage from John Calvin's commentary. He says, For it is a ridiculous cavil to refer this unto the affection of those which believed as if those received the gospel whose minds were well disposed. For this ordaining must be understood of the eternal counsel of God alone. Neither does Luke say that they were ordained unto faith, but unto life, because the Lord does predestinate His unto the inheritance of eternal life. Now, if God's election, whereby He ordains us unto life, be the cause of faith and salvation, there remains nothing for worthiness or merits. You notice what Calvin says? Calvin hits this head on. He he understands the argument. He says it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous argument to bring up that these people were somehow well disposed. They had predisposed themselves. There was something within them that got them into a position to be ready when the gospel came. He says this is not 
the way it works. God sovereignly ordained them to eternal life. And if, and if it's not God's sovereign election that ordained them to eternal life, then um, we would have room to have merit or worth. There'd be something within us to boast. And so you be the judge. Is it they were predestined and thus believed? Or were they predisposed and thus believed? Were they saved before they were saved, as the one Arminian says? Were they genuinely fearing the Lord and thus put themselves in a position to be ready when the gospel came because they were already in a position of, of, of making themselves be ready? Or do we look at this and say, God in His sovereignty ordained, predestined, chose that particular group of Gentiles in eternity past to be saved by His unconditional sovereign election alone. And in time, when Paul and Barnabas showed up and preached the gospel, because they were already elected, because they were already unconditionally chosen, they proved that election in the fruit of their belief. They believed because they were already chosen. It's very interesting because we, in our human minds, want to always put it back upon us. Well, I got to heaven because I chose. I was predisposed. There, there was something within me. There, there's some type of merit. Acts 13.48 goes right to the heart of grace. It goes right to the heart of God's sovereign election. It goes right to the heart of the confidence we have in the gospel. Now, two things should happen as a result of this. Number one, we should be absolutely humbled because the reason that you believed was not because you were so good. It's not because you were predisposed. It's not because you genuinely feared the Lord. It was you were dead in your sins. You were depraved. You were lost. You were rebellious. And God, in His sovereign grace, for reasons unknown to us, chose you in eternity past to be saved. And when the gospel came to you, the Holy Spirit brought conviction. The Holy Spirit opened the heart that was dead, that took that heart of flesh and gave you, I mean, the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He sovereignly regenerated you, gave you the gifts of repentance and faith, and you believed. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. And so you were given by the Father to Jesus and the Holy Spirit drew you. And when He drew you, you most certainly came to Jesus. You believed because you were appointed. You were ordained to believe and Jesus will raise you up on the last day. That should be a cause of great humility. There's nothing you can do to boast about that. You can't step foot into heaven and say, you know what, I'm here because I did something. I'm here because there was merit in me. I met some condition that God had before me and I'm pleading something that I contributed to this whole salvation. So it should produce humility. But it also should produce boldness. I mean, think about this for a moment. Paul and Barnabas go into a city, they preach the gospel, and many come to faith. And we may think about how does election work with evangelism. You go in the confidence that when you go and, and you present Christ, when you preach Christ, when you preach the gospel, what does Jesus say in John 10? The sheep will hear my voice. And so you have the confidence to know that when you go and share the gospel, 
when you proclaim the gospel, when you witness to one of your friends, when you witness to a coworker, you have the confidence to know that you don't have to arm twist, you don't have to manipulate, you don't have to do any type of cajoling. You simply share the gospel and God will call out His elect. Those who were ordained will believe. And so there's great um, peace in that, knowing that you, you, there's not a lot of anxiety in, in things that you have to produce, you have to manufacture in order to get a result. You simply preach the gospel, and if they were ordained to eternal life, they will believe. Now again, we don't know the identity of the elect. So the first time you share, they may not come to faith in Christ. Don't give up. God may use multiple different means, multiple different times in His sovereignty to bring that elect person to faith. And so my encouragement to you is never give up. Always preach the gospel. Always pray for lost people. Always be sharing the gospel. You don't know the identity of the elect. You don't know whom God has appointed for eternal life. All you know is that you do what Paul did. Let me ask you a question. When Paul and Barnabas went into Antioch of Pisidia and they went into that synagogue, did Paul and Barnabas know the identity of the elect? Did Paul and Barnabas know who had been appointed to eternal life. Did they go in there and say, okay, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, we look at you guys, you, we, you, you guys show outward evidences uh, of being um, elect, and so we're only going to preach to you, uh, this group over here, don't even bother listening to us because we know you're reprobate, so we're only going to be talking to the elect here. No, they indiscriminately go and they share the gospel to the entire assembly, and then those that were elect come to faith. And so again, we don't know the identity of the elect, so we share the gospel with every single person that we come across with, and we pray for them diligently for God to open their eyes, to bring them to salvation. And so we can go in the confidence to know that salvation is of the Lord. And when we step foot in heaven, there's going to be nothing in us that we can appeal to, whether we were a God-fearer, whether we were devout, whether we prayed, whether there was something that was predisposed in us, we will step foot into heaven and we will look uh, our Savior in the eye and say, the only reason I'm here is because of your sovereign grace. You were under no obligation to save me. I was dead in my sins. I was fallen in Adam. I did not deserve your grace. You reached down in sovereign election, initiative from first to last, and I'm here simply because it was your sovereign choice to bring me here from first to last. Thank you, Jesus. I fall on my face before you. I cannot boast in your presence. All I can do is fall in awe that you would dare save a rebel sinner like me. Acts 13.48, this is a controversial passage of Scripture. I think it clearly teaches the doctrine of unconditional election, the doctrine of sovereign regeneration, the doctrine of the confidence we have in evangelism. You be the judge. Well, thank you for listening to this podcast. Um, if you have enjoyed the podcast, you can leave a, a, a review and rating positively on iTunes. That would really help us. You can share this on your social media platforms, uh, Facebook. You can go to the Facebook page. Uh, Understanding Christianity now has a Facebook page. You can go there um, and like the page. You can share the page with others. Uh, you can also uh, go to Twitter. I, I, on that Facebook page, I, I do put up other things. I put up some sermon video from the sermons that I preach at my church. And so there's other things up there. So look for um, Understanding Christianity on Facebook. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.